as one of the pastors here too to our church. Glad you guys are with us, and uh, of course all of you as well for, for being back. Um, as Peter said, we are in Galatians right now as a church preaching-wise, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that'd be great if you have one, uh, or your phone apps or whatever, but as always, we have the main text always on screen. That's fine just to follow along there too. Uh, but Paul has been in mid-argument for a while, and so if you want to kind of read in context a bit, uh, please open to your, your app or Bible um, at, at this time or at some point here. So um, we are in, uh, like I said, a series in Galatians. Galatians is one of the uh, 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, we call it one of the epistles. Epistles means letters. Uh, letters written to encourage and kind of theologize uh, the church more about Christ and what, he, what he's all about. Really, it's in some sense kind of an oversimplification, but Galatians is just a book about Jesus at the end of the day. And the gospel, what we call the gospel, which means the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the benefits that, that, that sort of imparts to us into all of a cursed world as God is at work redeeming everything under the sun and, and beyond. And so uh, contextually, though, the letters all are real historical letters. So they're written by uh, real people uh, to real churches with real issues about a real God who really came into the world to die for real sinners like us. And so there's always occasion to it, sometimes a bit more general, uh, but sometimes more specific, like in Galatians or the churches of Galatia, which is a region uh, north of Galilee and Judea, uh, full of primarily Gentiles, but also some Jewish Christians too. Uh, the occasion is there's false teaching in the church, which is a super common thing uh, historically, but if, you, if you've read through the New Testament, or maybe if you, if you haven't, just know that about the New Testament. It is uh, it, it painstakingly addresses the issue of false teaching. It was, it was just a big deal in the first century. There were things that were true about Jesus and that weren't. And Paul, a lot of times, is responding to letters he's getting from these churches he helped to start about theology and about what life looks like as a Christian and about the gospel. Or sometimes he's just hearing these things that are happening that are bad, and he takes uh, more of the initial uh, job or task to write, uh, write them, as, as is the case with, uh, with this letter Galatians. And so the false teaching, it varies. Uh, throughout the New Testament, it varies. But in, in this book, the false teaching has to do uh, about what it means to be a Christian more broadly. But specifically, there's agreement on the starting point, what it means to kind of enter the faith or the threshold of the faith, and that is to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, to believe he died for us. And he was raised again into new life on that third day, which instigates a new creation for all people who who put faith, faith in him. But there's disagreement on the continuation point. And so when it comes to the, the question of what does it mean after I sort of ascribe to that intellectually and, and truly believe that happened and, and believe I'm a Christian because of that, as, as we rightly should, what does it mean to be a Christian after that? Or to put it differently, to stay a Christian or to stay in covenant with God. What is the path like, the journey, after we first believe. And some of us, like myself, I don't even have a day I, I remember becoming a Christian. For, for a lot of us, and for a lot, it's true for a lot of you, I know too, that there was, um, some of you that's true and that's wonderful. For those of you that it's not, that's okay because it's, conversions can be messy. It can be slow or uh, more of a process. And so, but regardless of what the door was like, now that we're Christians, what does it look like then to continue? Uh, what's the door? What's the path? How do those relate? Those kind of things. Galatians is full of these types of issues and Paul writes to address the false teaching infiltrating the church. That has more to do then with uh, Jesus is the door but not the path. So Jesus saves, but we keep ourselves saved. And that, by that I mean we, we stay in 
by keeping, as, as the book says, keeping Old Testament law, not just being circumcised, which these false teachers were encouraging male Christians in Galatia to do, but that was sort of an entry law. It, it's, it's hard to read Galatians and not think of the whole of the law, including the moral law, because that was the burden. Uh, that was the thing that, you know, when Paul talks about the law being a prison and something that can't be kept, he's referring more to that than ceremonial laws like circumcision, because that was very passive. It was done on the eighth day for babies, and it was not a burden as much as the, the Ten Commandments were. So disagreement on those things. And so one of the issues then theologically is how do, how do Christians relate gospel and good works? How does grace relate to this important aspect of Christians being for the good and for the beautiful and for the godly and things like that? And so it, it's a tension. You guys, if you've had questions along these lines, you're in good company. I've got them. We've all got them. Uh, the Bible doesn't have overly simplistic answers sometimes, and that's actually a really good thing. But it does have answers. So uh, find that happy middle, you know, of, of not just raising the white flag and saying, well, we can never know, but also not, not having overly simplistic answers at the same time in terms of uh, the Christian life and how grace and good, the, grace and good works relate uh, while still not requiring them to be saved as uh, we've been saying Jesus replaces them. So we'll, we'll explain more. That's my best attempt at a summary on four chapters there. There's a lot more to say. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this again here in a few, few minutes. Uh, the topic today is good people persecuting gospel people. A big, big theme in the Bible. Not just Galatians, but the whole of the Bible. I'll talk about that to end in a little bit. There's actually a lot going on. It was hard to get one phrase over the whole thing like an umbrella. But um, we'll, we'll get our, take our time getting to that, but we'll spend a lot of time towards the end of the sermon on that topic. So, But for now, let's dive right in in the first few verses to start. Uh, verses 8 to 11. Uh, follow along on screen if you want your Bibles and We'll spend some time in this section before the, the latter bigger one. The Apostle Paul speaking, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Speaking of uh, demons there. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. All right, so a few things going on here. It's a, kind of a little complicated of a paragraph in terms of certain uh, phraseology here, but he's, he's still basically on topic with where we were last week. Uh, he used an analogy last week of being imprisoned or being uh, enslaved or under the oppression of the law. Uh, he's still kind of on topic here using similar words in uh, verse 8, but also in verse 8, linking as he says, enslaved to those things that are by nature not God's, referring to demons. And so this is uh, um, pretty much another sermon. So I'll just mention this here, uh, but encourage you to go and read this for yourselves. In 1 Timothy 4, same author, Paul likens demonic teaching with uh, certain types of Christians who are teaching false things like requiring things like fasting or encouraging abstinence from sex and marriage, uh, things like that. He calls that teachings of demons, which is like, really? It's like, that's an overreaction, Paul. We might be inclined to say or something, but he thinks it is. And, and the practice of requiring things that God doesn't anymore, or, or calling things that God calls good and God created to be enjoyed, uh, whether that's food or whether that's uh, sex in the marriage context or whatever else that these false teachers were saying, abstain from to be a good Christian. You have to abstain from those things and be more ascetic. Uh, whatever that is, it's, God has labeled them good and to be received an expression of his common grace and a, 
in a, an image or a shadow of special grace that, that is Christ on that cross and, and the empty tomb. The practice of, of requiring things now, though, that God doesn't anymore, uh, Paul calls demonic. And so linking that verse 8 there with verse 9, you do see him bring in the law, though, as well. He's actually saying the same thing. It might not seem like he is, but saying weak and worthless elementary principles of the world and then talking about ceremonial-type laws like Sabbath-keeping in, in verse 10 and that kind of thing. All that is linked for Paul. Uh, he sees demons at work in the church when laws are put over Christians that Jesus never commands. or, or God, God is, We're in a New Testament now where we passed up these things, and so he sees demonic work there too, which is a strong language, very strong. And this is not, it, it's, it might to some of us seem like a simple nuanced thing when we talk about the role of the law in the Christian life, but for Paul, it's a very, very big deal and, um, and needs to be marinated in the Christian heart and really talk through and preach through and, and so that we're not led astray from Christ. But notice the strong conjunction in verse 9. So uh, verse 9 says, but now that you have, you have come to, to know God or rather be known by him, how can you turn back again to basically requiring law-keeping and acts of morality and different forms of traditional law observance. But grammatically in verse 9, what, what is, this kind of begs the question, I think, and I'll just ask it, what's the opposite here of a law-centered form of spirituality? Because the but implies contrast. It's not and now, it's, it's but now. So we were formerly enslaved, so verse 8 to, to demonic teachings and explains that below. What is the contrast? Why is the but there. What's the contrast to following God's commandments and laws as we think more of an Old Testament way that set the stage for Christ? The opposite here, to use his language, is to be known by God. That's it, to be known by God. I actually like that he says, and Peter talked about this before that song, but I'll just comment on it a little bit too. He says, when you came to know God, but you can almost hear him pause there with his pen, you know, just stop and say, well, wait a minute, there's a better way to say that. Oh yeah, or rather, that you have come to be known by him. Uh, that's a really helpful theological qualification, just to make an aside here quick before we go back to verse 9. A helpful theological qualification we can make about a lot of things in how we talk about theology and God's posture toward us. In other words, we could say the same thing about finding God. When you found God, Christian, or rather, when you were found by him. When you understood the gospel, Christian, or rather, when God revealed the gospel to you. When you chose to follow him, or rather, when he chose to save you. When you do good, or rather, when God uh, does good through you by his Holy Spirit. I mean, the list is kind of endless here in terms of how we talk. Now, the former way is not wrong. Paul could have erased this, right, or etched it out, or whatever, whatever he could have done. Could have erased it, but he didn't. So it's not wrong to say, I found God. It looks that way, and there's some truth to that, for sure. But he is qualifying it. To only talk in, I found God, I chose God, uh, I, I came to know God myself terms is not right theologically. It's incorrect. It's too much about us. And so Paul balances that, qualifies that with God is at work in our lives. This is the gospel. It, it's a better thought, right? I mean, it's not wrong to say we've come to know God because we have. But a better, more full thought to say God has chose to know has chose to know us, warts and all. You know, with all of our doubts and fears and disbeliefs and sins and propensities to self-worship every day, he's chosen to know us. It's an intimate word, knowing 
uh, contextually especially, deeply knowing us. And so the gospel says, whatever you've done, you are, you are fully known, fully known and, and loved in the gospel in, in spite of ourselves. Like that's, that's radical stuff if you really think about that, uh, but incredibly, incredibly good news. But again, this, this is important. Going back to verse 9, being known by God is more descriptive of Christian spirituality than is law-keeping or rote cold moralism. Because being reconciled to him by his own loving sacrifice and willingness to forgive our sins, that is the center. That's what he's been saying throughout the book. That's the center and the ongoing center. That's the issue in Galatia. He's writing this to Christians who already believe that Jesus is the starting point. So he's not going back talking about what it means to be saved. He's talking about what it means to be ongoingly kind of kept by God. And so that is for Paul to be known by him every day, to be reconciled to him, to know his loving presence and loving sacrifice and and believe that whatever we do, as we maybe under the umbrella of his grace seek to love but fail every single day as we do more self-love than love others, he's there. And he points us back to the cross saying, actually the gospel is more about me loving you than you loving me. It's more about me loving you than you loving others. Not those latter things are bad things, but it's more about those things. And so every day the ongoing center is a reminder type thing. Paul and Jesus, we'll talk about communion later, but it's all about the Bible, it's about reminding. So that's like part of our mission as Christians, for ourselves and others. Reminding, 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 which implies what? We're forgetful. And so Paul asks here the question, which I, I love this question theologically, but it bothers me, like, practically and just personally because, you know, I am the Galatians. We are the Galatians uh, in terms of our inclination to replace Jesus with things. But it's a great question. It should prod us. Paul asks, how can you go back? To expand on this a little bit, it's, it's like he's saying, you believed in Jesus. You believed in his death and resurrection for your deliverance. But now you observe the Sabbath rigidly. You fast from food all the time, insisting on asceticism. You tape the Ten Commandments on your bathroom mirror as though it's the center of your faith. You believe God to be over there rather than in here. And in all this, you take your gaze off of Jesus' cross and put it squarely onto your works, walking back into a prison cell, though you'd just been freed. I thought I pointed you to Jesus. What happened? This is like his angst. He gets actually pastorally here, to call himself a man with anguish, like a woman in childbirth. It's, it's uh, actually at the end here, uh, was it this passage or uh, the, the next one? I uh, can't remember, but basically in, the, in this context, he says, you know, I wish I could change my tone. I w- I'm perplexed about you. Like, I wish I had Skype, basically. You know, my internet's down. I wish you could see my face because I love you so much and I'm so bothered and burdened and perplexed and surprised that you would trade freedom for prison, trade Jesus for yourself. This is what he's saying. And remember, we talk about good works, like there is a, a fine line, an important line, but a difficult, it's difficult to understand this, but a fine line between thinking our good works flow from our soul trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, a fine line between that and replacing and adding to Jesus with our good works. Or we could say a huge difference between good works being given to us by Jesus through his resurrection 
and believing good works come from us and are essential in the salvation of the sinner post-conversion. If that latter piece is not the gospel, and it's not, then this affects what we think of when we think of, to actually look at verse 9, what we think of when we think of demonic doctrine. You know, and this is where uh, I don't naturally think this way. I'll just say that. I don't naturally kind of just, you know, label things that Paul does demonic. Uh, But we'd be wise to submit ourselves to it and just kind of resign ourselves to the fact that maybe we don't see things as clearly as the Holy Spirit does, right, uh, through the pen of Paul. And so this can shape then, what I mean by this is it can shape the way we think about false teaching. So, again, big theme in the Bible, I talked about that earlier, huge part of the New Testament is addressing false teaching. But this can shape, if the latter thing isn't the gospel, I was talking about before, if it's not about works, but they can kind of muddy the waters. And it affects what we think about when we think about how is the devil and demonic activity going to take shape in a church, even like ours, at, uh, at Hiawatha here? How's that going to look? Michael Horton in, um, actually I don't know where he wrote this. I was going to say it's his book Ordinary, but I don't think it is. It might have just been a tweet or something, but that's too long for a tweet. Whatever. I saw it somewhere. Uh, Michael Horton says this. He actually quotes a different guy, but um, he says, what would think, same question, what would things look like if Satan really con- took control of a city? Not trying to answer this holistically or comprehensively, to be clear, but great question. He answers it well. Over a half century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, it's put in Minneapolis, but all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. In other words, promoting goodness and justice without Christ and him crucified is demonic. You know, in a comfortable society like ours, and this is, again, the spirit of this is alive in Galatians and so many other places. Actually, think of Genesis 3. Think of the very beginning of the Bible when Satan is tempting the first human beings, Adam and Eve. The temptation is not go and murder and commit adultery. The first temptation is not commit occultish behavior, you know, a satanic seance. The first temptation is to say, you actually are pretty good. You yourselves can be like God if you try hard enough. You don't need it as much as you think. God didn't totally tell you the truth there. It's kind of a half-truth, and yes, he's good, but you guys are also pretty good people. All hell breaks loose after people buy into that. That's how your Bibles begin. So the context for everything else, really, in the Bible is that beginning. So we, we define sin as people. It's not just doing bad. It's doing good without God. Though all goodness can be seen as at least common grace in some sense, but the requirement, the, the clinging to it as though it were, it were itself maybe God, and as though we are able, we're capable, those are things that Jesus comes into the world apart from as well to show that we need salvation from it, from it as well. But promoting goodness and justice without Christ and him crucified, that's a subtle thing, right? And that's a lot of these things in this quote, those are good things, you know? Your kids to obey you, that'd be pretty, pretty great, you know, and pornography banished. If I could snap my fingers, I'd do it right now and, and banish it. 
But, but the issue is, those things happening without Christ and crucified being preached, what good are they? What do they ultimately do? Ultimately, I mean. Besides temporal goodness, what are they ultimately doing? Satan loves churches that don't preach Christ and them crucified under the guise of patting each other on the back saying, aren't we amazing? And here's how we can change society. And here's how we can serve and volunteer. All the while not mentioning Christ. Not talking about the essence of the New Testament. This happens everywhere, everywhere. And if we're not careful, it'll happen here or in our own hearts, individually, or lives, or community groups. Proactive thinking about the gospel is required because if we get passive, this is what we'll default to as a church and as Christians. This is our future, you guys. This is, this is Hiawatha Church, parts of this or whatever, all this, but pieces to this. If we stop preaching Christ, we can make happy little citizens, but they're just as hellbound as before. What good is that? We all need Christ. And Satan is a masterful liar. He's a masterful, masterful twister of the truth. Our own hearts followed suit, have our whole lives, still kind of do, even as Christians. He's a masterful twister of truth. And many times he'll try to deceive you with good things rather than obviously bad things, though he will do that too. But rather than obviously bad things, because that is something we much more, like Adam and Eve, our first parents before us, uh, completely fell into and were, and were duped by. So be aware. Let's keep going. Uh, th- this, he, he continues a lot of this stuff. Um, but all that first piece flowed a lot from last week and so um, in terms of flow of thought. But let's, let's see how he continues. 4.12 to 20. Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, become as I am, for I am al- I've also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of. There we go. Always good to be made much of for a good purpose. They want to, uh, for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am, again, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. All right, so let's look at this section now. This is a great little section, kind of feels like a hiatus almost in some ways in terms of Paul's tone throughout the rest of it or the content, the the subject matter. A a lot of commentators say that this passage shows us insight into Paul's pastoral heart more than almost anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, It also gives us context to know kind of the background to how the churches were planted first at all. In Galatia, he says, because of a bodily ailment. So he's passing through the region, preaching the gospel, and the ailment probably slowed him down in the region so that more might hear the gospel from him. Which, quick aside here, is, is amazing because it means that God uses suffering. If Paul wasn't sick, less people would have heard about Jesus and be, and be saved from their sins. You know, So if this happened to him, it could happen to you. God will have a plan for your suffering to bring about great, great, great good. He will. 
and so see it that way. And a lot of times as we bring the gospel to people, we will suffer. We'll be suffering evangelists because God wants people not just to hear the gospel from our lips, but to see the gospel in our bodies as we bear Christ in front of a lost world. So that will happen a lot of times as well, so expect it. Now, we don't know what he was sick with here, but it was apparently a pretty gross illness like malaria because he says, you know, or he implies my condition could have been a trial to you in terms of your, your care for me, but, but, but it wasn't. They accepted him and cared for him very sacrificially and did not scorn or despise him. So in other words, it wasn't just him, but it was his gospel. Like they accepted him and accepted his message and accepted the Christ that he bore. And so we even say, see him say here, he's in anguish over that. I mentioned this before, but in anguish like a woman in the pains of childbirth. And this phrase is super important here. It says, until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you, I'm in, I'm in anguish. I'm like in the pains of childbirth. And pastorally, that is a beautiful image. Uh, painful, beautiful, anguish-ridden image and prayer really pastorally for him you're seeing him kind of take a break here from his admonishment and to say this is how important you guys are to me and your your spiritual growth and development in christ and really we would say speaking for the other overseers here too expresses our heart for where we're at before you guys in terms of how we pray for you and um in terms of that the type of anguish uh, not this exact same thing necessarily all the time but the type of anguish the things that keep us up at night put it that way, for ourselves, not just you guys, for ourselves, what we want as a church is to have Christ formed in us. We'll come back to that phrase later, but that's what we want. This is the kind of the content of our prayers, is we want more Jesus. We, we want all you guys and us to get a better hold of the gospel of grace and to truly walk with Christ as Savior and not a little convenient advice-giving buddy but truly walk with Christ as Savior, more than teacher. Uh, Savior, more than advice giver. Savior, more than life coach. But Savior, that's what the angels announced at his birth, right, in, in Luke. When, when his impending birth was announced, it was a Savior is going to be born. Not a sage or moral teacher, though he taught. You know, Jesus is called rabbi a couple times before his resurrection, but after his resurrection, the, the church doesn't call him rabbi anymore. It's like he's Lord. He's Savior. There's a shift. The cross and the empty tomb change things uh, a bit there, and it's important to note those things when you read the Bible as a story, as, as we should. Anyway, so now, it, now he's saying, so kind of in real time here, he's acknowledging his past with them, and now he's saying, you accepted me, you accepted my sufferings, like you accepted Christ's sufferings for your benefit. You accepted my sufferings, kind of a picture of that. Then he says, I became like you. That is to say, I became, as a Jew, like a non-Jew or a non-law observer. And you became like me in that state. But then he says this, am I now your enemy? I'm jumping around here a bit, but he, he calls them, have I become your enemy? We were brothers. You know, I called you family. You were brothers and sisters in the faith, and, and I was your pastor. Have we and we were, when we were unified by Christ, we are we were so different and yet so alike because we believe the same things about the gospel. But have I now doctrinally, that's implied here, belief-wise become your enemy? Which is already, what this is saying is there's already a bit of a mild, if not major, but I'll say mild persecution of Paul happening here from afar. And that the Galatian church looks down on him for his overly simplistic message. If you know a bit about Paul or if you don't, 
understand this. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is a good example of this. Others of his letters, I think, also suggest this a bit or give us more insight. 1 Corinthians is the best because he gets more explicit with it. But Paul would preach the gospel to a city, then he would leave. Then he would hear that after he left, people were graduating from the gospel and calling him like a simpleton or an overly simple-minded, you know, he's just about grace. But now we're about this. Now I go to this guy's church who, who gives us advanced Christianity. Christianity like, you know, 2001, not 101, you know, but 2001, that kind of thing. And he gets this kind of subtle jab, subtle persecution, you know, of overly simplistic, just about Christ and him crucified, and, and now people are rallying around other names. And so he addresses that kind of factionalism and pride and gospel twisting, gospel adding type of idea in the first couple of chapters that we won't look at today, for time's sake, but for context. But this is getting the same thing. This is whispering the same kind of idea that, that Paul brought the gospel and that alone saying, this is how biblical history has progressed unto this man who died for you, and it's enough. This is the love of God for you, and you accepted it. And now you've gone back into prison demanding that you be perfect or really, really good or law keepers or that you be circumcised and Sabbath, and, and Sabbath keep and, and fast and all this stuff. You demand it of each other. And you get proud of your ascetic life, that you're harming, you're, you're harming yourself and aren't you amazingly spiritual, these kind of things that Paul is Paul's addressing. And in that, though, Paul is saying again, I feel like I'm your enemy. So this idea ends up continuing a... Uh, and I mentioned this before, a very uh, pronounced biblical theme uh, uh, of persecution happening, and I'll say it this way here because we're in the New Testament in Galatians, but inside the church. And so persecution inside the church, or in other words, good people, not, not bad people, it's good people on the outside, squeaky clean on the outside people, uh, pastor types, religious leaders, spiritual people, even Christians, persecuting and accusing gospel people. To explain that phrase a, a little bit more, next week we're actually going to see this come up uh, in 4, 21 to 31, which is next week's passage that uh, Spence will preach, so I won't uh, steal too much of his uh, thunder here. But uh, to just mention one piece to that, what Paul's going to do is gonna, he's going to say that way back at the beginning of the biblical story, Abraham had two sons, one was named Ishmael. He was a child of works. He was born by Abraham's effort. And then Paul says there was a second child born after that named Isaac, who was a child of promise. And he, and he theologizes about that throughout the whole 10, 11 verses there, whatever that is. But then at the end he says, in the story back in Genesis, the child of works persecutes the child of grace. The child of works who was born by Abraham's efforts persecutes and laughs at and mocks Isaac, the child of promise, who was simply born completely by God's effort, not by Abraham's, not by Sarah's. Sarah was barren. She's 100 years old, completely incapable of having kids, but God miraculously allowed her to. So the point there is to say, and Jesus came through Isaac's line, theologically is to say, Jesus is from the line of God doing everything, not from the line of Abraham interceding and saying, I am going to bring salvation to the world myself. Jesus is not from that line. He's from the line of, of Isaac. But at the end of that, just to point this out, he's going to say at the very beginning of the Bible, we see this start to happen where, where children of, of works uh, show this type of, of attitude. that They persecute uh, children of, of promise. And we see it uh, weave through the whole Old Testament. I'm really going ahead here, but 
moralistic, or actually we talked about this, but in, in Galatian, the Galatian context, it's happening. Moralistic Galatian Christians and these false teachers are persecuting Paul, who's a man of grace. That's what we're seeing in today's passage. We see it in Jesus' day as well. Pharisees or pastors, basically, of the day are persecuting Jesus for the sake of his perceived liberalness and lawlessness. There's so much we could look at here. Here's a couple of examples. In Matthew 19, uh, Jesus speaking, he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a liberal. And John 5 uh, says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus broke the Sabbath, when he changed the Sabbath to be wrapped more around him now and not a law, which is what he's doing with all of the law in a way, uh, that, that was a great offense to people who were otherwise saying, I'm really good at keeping the Sabbath and I feel proud about myself for it. Huge offense. So, so good people, spiritual people, moralistic people, pastors of the day. Those are the ones actually that has some of the big, biggest problems with Jesus. Not, um, uh, although Satan is obviously kind of this main pro- antagonist in the story, it's not uh, just him, it's surprisingly good people. But that should, again, this whole idea should just shape the way we think about the gospel. If, if Jesus came to give law, he would never have this kind of persecution. If he came to kind of keep in step with the old system, he, these things would never be written in here. They'd be inconsistent. So the fact that he was, that he was accused and persecuted by good people, by law keepers, shapes the way we think about, well, well, then what did he come to do? He must have been challenging that way of thinking, that way of this perceived way of how we connect with God, this old system. That people, instead of seeing as a way to point to Christ, as an imprisoning thing to make us want a liberator, we're actually clinging to it as a means of deliverance and, and salvation. And so they were, they were offended. We also see it in the book of Acts. So after Jesus dies and is raised, and the first Christians start to preach, and they're persecuted by uh, Jewish Christians, persecuted by other Jews as well. So again, uh, these would have been very good people of the day. In Stephen's case in Acts 6, this is, his, this is how he's accused before he's stoned to death. This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say, Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they eventually kill him. Acts 21, in, um, Paul is, Paul's on trial. And they again speak up uh, before these tribunals and councils and governors. And, and, and they say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the law and this temple. There are more things we could, we, could, we could look at. But to give you a sampling, that this is a pattern in the Bible. It's a pattern of good people, otherwise good people, persecuting gospel people. And so we understand the gospel, it's not as simple as saying it's about being good over and against the bad. It has to be more than that. Because it was those people who understood it that way that were doing the persecuting. You understand? has to be something different. So lessons we can learn from this then, there's a lot of things we could say. Lessons are, the gospel is such that, that when we preach it, even Christians will think that we are against the law, which includes good, work, good works. And, and we're not. So the gospel doesn't say we're against good works, but that's, that'll be the accusation sometimes uh, that, that we will get. And by the way, I don't mean like asking questions about it. A lot of you have asked great questions about this concept. I, I mean antagonism. I mean, like, 
you know, wanting to kill someone, or at least in the heart, just having distaste or uh, impatience or thinking that, that Christians thinking that they're better than gospel people who alone centralize the gospel. Antagonism, that's what I mean. So if you're asking the question, this is a different category. We, we love that. And you're in good company, like I said before. We're all asking these questions. Difficult to understand. But the gospel is such biblically, clearly, as we've seen, that when we preach it, it's so much centered on grace that Christians, even Christians sometimes, will scratch their head and say, well, that seems really anti-good or anti-anti-law. Second here, the, the, the gospel is such that when we centralize that some Christians and other types of religious people will note your free lifestyle in the gospel and take offense. They will misunderstand and will sometimes twist your words into being a promoter of anti-good or evil. And then third, many ways you could word these things, just a few examples. The, the gospel is such that when we make it our everything, good, religious, uber-conservative Christians will call us sinners, gluttons, simpletons, and unspiritual. They might also say we are misreading the Old Testament. Now, here's the big question. Uh, first, a statement. One, this will happen. If you're centralizing grace, this will happen. If it hasn't happened to you, it will, if you centralize grace. It's happened a lot to us as a church over the years, just kind of as a corporate uh, thing here. Personally, to me, it has. Many of you have this experience, I know. Uh, but this will happen. It happened to Jesus, happened to Paul, happened to Stephen. We see the principle alive in the Old Testament. So it is a major, major biblical motif. But here's the question. What do we do in that moment? What do you do when you're misunderstood? Will we acquiesce or, or compromise? You know, it, it's, it's interesting here in Jesus' case, in Stephen's case, in Paul's case, in context in the narratives, though it wouldn't have been wrong for them to do, they don't qualify their teaching or even answer their accusers on this matter directly. They just preach Jesus more and love their enemies even unto their own deaths. And the question for us then again is, what are we going to do? Live similarly or not? It's a great example. What are we going to do as a church? What if people leave here because we talk about grace too much? Or what if we get accused of encouraging evil, even though we never do? Or of not being behind enough social causes? Or not observing Lent together? The list can go on. What if accusations come to your doorstep or to your life, if they haven't already, or just to, to church? Maybe there's some of your best friends in the church that will have, again, I'm not talking about asking the question I mean the accusation and uh, the, the pride of thinking that they're better than you because their lives look more ascetic and more, and more spiritual. Luther says this on this exact issue in his commentary on Galatians. He says, people will say, in light of this whole thing we've been talking about, this is what people will say. We might as well live like wild people if the law does not count. What are we to do? Such scoffing distresses us, but we can't stop it. Christ himself was accused of being a blasphemer and a rebel. Paul and all the other apostles were told the same things. Here's a solution. Let the scoffers slander us. Let them spare us not. But we must not on their account keep silent. We must speak frankly in order that afflicted consciences of sinners may find surcease. That they may not perish with the multitudes. 
Luther says here, we can't stop it. We looked at examples, just like he's mentioning, we can't stop this misunderstanding, this twisting of grace into licentiousness. And we can't stop this idea of the, the, the Christians who center grace are promoters of the anti-good, even though they're wrong. But in some sense, they're observing it rightly. We talk so much about grace and not commandment that there should be a question. There should be wonder. There should be like, help me understand. There should be some of that, right? I mean, if, if there wasn't, if Stephen and Paul and Jesus were talking in any way, again, any way about commandment being the center of spirit or a part even of spirituality, they would not have had persecution by spiritual people. They would not have had persecution by the Jews. Their message, their lifestyle were apart from law. And though there will be misunderstanding, a twisting of that, a, a pendulum swinging too far the other way in people's minds from that, we cannot stop preaching Christ because we need to help afflicted consciences find surcease, find, find peace, find reconciliation with God. The only way to do that is with Christ because the law does not de-afflict the conscience. It never has been able to. It's just done the opposite. It's afflicted the conscience, but the gospel de-afflicts. It, it, it soothes the conscience because we know that God shows favor to sinners now because of what Jesus did completely. And so we, we see here then that there's no compromising or balancing between gospel and good works. It's not 50-50. It's all gospel. The apostles, when pushed on this, didn't say, all right, you're right, we've taken this grace thing a little too far. Obviously, we're kind of about God's moral commands here as well. Blah, blah, blah. They never say that. Isn't that fascinating? They could have, but they didn't. They kept preaching Christ. They kept loving their enemies tirelessly, even to their own breath, and they were okay with being misunderstood or even with having their words twisted. So to comment a little bit more on that by way of conclusion here, theologically, I have two things to sort of a what now question. Theologically, this is my encouragement for you guys. I know that um, a lot of you are in different places with this. Here's my broad encouragement is, uh, in general, our lives can look different and will, and that's okay uh, in terms of the nitty-gritty. But theologically, we need to have a category for being a true gospel person that's apart from law while not being a promoter of evil at the same time. Or in other words, we have to have a category for being apart from good works. Our salvation's apart from good works, but not being anti-good at the same time. And the only way to do that, really, is with Christ. Because the center we make our lives about doing good and not doing evil, it's impossible to hold those two things in tension, right? We have to have a third way of Christ himself on that cross being our everything. And once we centralize him, it's possible to be all about him, but not being pro-evil at the same time and still being apart from works. It's super easy, right? <laughs> Guys are like, yeah, like, oh, yeah, it clicks, right? Uh, it doesn't. It shouldn't click. Like, if that's hard, it should be. It was hard for these people in the narratives. Galatians is complicated. And there's a tension, a paradox here that needs to be held in tension and not easily resolved. But Jesus is the closest thing we get to resolution. Otherwise, it just kind of stays in you know, philosophical tension, and that's about it. So again, this will bring great offense to self-righteous people, people who love the idea of being good more than Jesus. That's very possible. Be warned against that, you guys. All of us should, I should. Who love the idea of good generally, vaguely, more than Jesus himself, but 
but stay the course, believe in and preach Christ and him crucified alone, and never, ever relent. And if people misunderstand you, know that they misunderstood Jesus. Take some, some encouragement in that. Pastorally now, or personally, or, or spiritually, I want to go back to something Paul said about his prayer for the, the Galatians. And by, by way of question, when you think of yourself as a Christian, what dictates your maturity level? Like, if someone just asked you that, how mature, it's maybe kind of weird, but how mature are you as a Christian? Sip of coffee, you know, talk to me. Uh, tough question. But how, what would you think of right away? I mean, what you think of right away when someone asks that question dictates a lot about your spirituality and where you are with these types of matters. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it moral goodness alone or is it more of Christ? It's really important to see here in this passage, Paul, for Christians, doesn't say, now, after Christ, what I desire for you is for the law to be more formed in you, but rather, I want more of Christ to be formed in you. And so, do you, speaking just to Christians in the room for a second, do you desire for Christ himself to be more formed in you? Is that something you want? It's okay to be, like Paul is here as a pastor, we share this as pastors, your pastors, as a church informs the way that we pray and think about preaching and think about ministry as a church and visiting you when you're sick or, or whatever it is. Um, but you can have anguish too over looking at your heart and looking at someone you know closely in your church community who does not have Christ formed. It's, it's possible to be saved and not have Christ formed that well in you. Right? How does that work? That's kind of strange. But he wants more maturity in Christ is, is the key. More savoring of the gospel of grace that we don't really know that well, if we're honest. We just don't. And that's part of the problem sometimes is we think we know grace and we think we're done with it. And so we, we tend to move on. But if we think, what if we thought we don't know it that well? You know, it's, it's a foreign language. Everything that happened on the cross, I'm not privy to all of it. I haven't read the whole Bible yet. Or, or whatever it is, that's sort of the tireless push. That's the, that's the urge, is reading our Bibles, actually, hearing God's voice in this, not ripping the Old Testament out, but seeing it play a role to point us to the new, seeing Christ shadowy in a shadowy way imaged in the old and pointed to the new and hearing his promises. His commands are not burdensome. They're, they're, they're basically just love people. You know, believe in me and love people. That's we could work on that the rest of our days, and that, that's like it, right? It's, it's free. It's freeing, but also, wow, that's, that's a big calling. So here's my encouragement for you guys. Let Paul's anguish and yearning for other, other believers, more of Christ, inform yours for yourself and for others here. You know this is how we pray as pastors here. It's not simply that you become a good person, but that you would become a gospel person. I pray that every Sunday, I, I pace this floor right here every those blue cards every uh, Sunday expense you walk the sanctuary to sometimes. You walk the neighborhood. You're more athletic than I am or something. But Spence actually gets outside and breathes the free air. I'm, I'm in here. But no, I, I like to be in here and just think about you guys and um, pray for you. I, and love, we love praying for the requests. Keep filling those cards up. Those are great. Uh, but regardless of what it says on those cards, we always pray that you, you and us would become more a person who would know grace better, have a grace-shaped heart, that then would prompt us to good deeds, but not to replace that with this vague sense of moralism that could never save and actually puts us in prison. And, and that whole thing can be a painful process. It can be humbling. 
because it doesn't flatter us. It's, he says here about the false teachers, they, they make much of you. It's, it's a good sign of works is in a church is when, or false teaching when someone tries to make a lot of you and say, you're pretty good, you can do it, you're amazing. This is Genesis 3, demonic lies. And so it, the flattery is what he's saying. They, the false teachers, want to make much of you. But when you're made much of, how are you going to see your need for Christ? We, we, you know, we're loved deeply, but we're way more sinful than we ever thought, we ever dreamed. And our worst nightmares, it's, it's, the problem's way worse. That actually makes grace more needed. The, the problem with thinking that we're actually worthy of love, not just, no, I'm not talking love, we are loved by God, amen. But I mean worthy of love. The problem with that is, how is that a grace idea? If we're worthy of love, if we're lovable or worthy of love, then it actually messes with the whole, the whole thing. All of a sudden, we're, we deserve God's love. We're, we're worth it. And, uh, and that, that starts to take us off course really, really quickly spiritually. It takes the focus well off of Christ and puts it square on us, which is what's happening here. Flattery. They want to make much of you. They, that, they might make, that, that you might, might make much of them. Tongue twister. It's like everyone's making much of each other. It's like this like, huddle. Like, oh, we're amazing. Did you see his tweets? Whoa, so smart. And are we, you know, that's Wicked. That, that, that's not Christian. That's uh, that, that kind of you know persistence with flattery is um, dangerous and um, needs to be called out and repented of, and we need Jesus. Um, so gospelize people, evangelize people. Don't flatter them. Gospelize them. And so it, it's full of suffering. You will be persecuted for this. If you haven't already, centralized grace. You'll be looked down on for being too simple, not ascetic enough, not spiritual. And, uh, but say the course. Believe the gospel. Keep pressing ahead. The reward's very great because we get God. Other people might want the flattery, want the backpats, they might want the, the accolade. But wow, you fasted for a week? Whoa. Want that kind of th- stuff, but you know, for us, it's like Jesus is enough, or should be. Jesus is enough, and we get, we get Christ. So, we don't need all that stuff that this church is wrestling with, churches, and, and we will too, and many do. So with that, let me pray for us. God, God thank you for uh, the gospel here according to Galatians 4. God, please help us as Christians to somehow navigate this balance between the, the importance of, of gospel truth and the importance of being for the good, for the beautiful, um, and for the, the, the ordering of society, the advancement, God of justice in this culture. Uh, help us to have the right motives to it. Uh, but to still, God, when we preach about Christ, to have this kind of weird thing happen when the gospel is really talked about, that there will be struggle. And that's, in one sense, that's okay. But there also will be antagonism. Uh, there will be people who will um, want more advanced Christianity churches and uh, will look down on us and feel good about themselves because they know, know more Hebrew potentially, a little bit more Greek. They fast more. Um, they felt good about how much they've resisted pornography, uh, really good about themselves, over and against people who haven't. And they're flatterers. And, and that's in all, in all of us. We say that, I say that broadly, but I'm saying that's, that's in my heart. That's in all of our hearts on some level. We all have that inclination. Save us from that. Not just from evil, but from seeking the good that's void of you. 
uh, that, that's just as much of an evil, and it's just as much of a demonic temptation, as Paul says, a demonic teaching in 1 Timothy 4 uh, that we need to be uh, aware of. So Christ be our everything. Save us from ourselves. Save us, God, from bad theology. Uh, save us from, from sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, we'll spend the rest of our time here today.